Welcome to On the Edge of Equity, where every episode features crucial conversations centered on equity, diversity, and inclusion. But this isn't just talking the talk. It's about inspiring action, asking tough questions, and getting honest answers, because that's the only way that real change happens. Welcome back to On the Edge of Equity. I am your host, Tammy Belton-Davis, the founder and president of Athena Communications. And this episode of our podcast is powered by Athena Communications. So for all of you who've been listening to us, who've been engaging with us, welcome back. We know that you will continue to find these conversations to be valuable. And I am really excited about our conversation today. We started our podcast really in an effort to have crucial conversations that are focused on the issues that are impacting our communities around equity and diversity and inclusion, and not just having the conversations, but how do we inspire action. So I am really, really excited to have as our guest today, Dr. Marcus Arrington, who is the senior pastor at Embassy Center MKE. Welcome, Dr. Arrington. How are you? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to say, Madam President, uh, it's a true honor uh, to be able to spend some time this afternoon, and I'm excited about the conversation. Me too, and thank you. I I want to tell you that we have had a number of guests who have been, you know, a part of these conversations, a part of this podcast, and I'm definitely elated for a host of reasons for you to join us. One, because you come with so many perspectives around this work from a spiritual, from professional, from somebody who's been deeply dedicated to this work in this community as a former educator, administrator, and leader um, within the ministry. Can you just talk a little bit about how you really made that transition? As I've shared, you, and you can certainly touch on this as part of your background as an educator, as an administrator, and now as senior pastor of what is now Embassy Center MKE. And I hope we have a chance to talk about that transition as well. Sure. So making the transition from, I guess, one area of serving leadership to another, it can be challenging. But for me, I always knew that I would not have a, a static kind of career when it comes to education. My mother being a, a former educator uh, with the, the local school district I come from, a family of educators. And so it was kind of uh, perhaps the path that I was supposed to to be on to to go into that field. But I would say it was probably my third year or so that I realized that this is not something I want to do forever. Yet I recognize the significance of being able to touch young lives. So some would say that I was on a, a fast track, started teaching at North Division High School in the area of social studies, Went back to school, got my master's, and I knew I wanted to be an administrator. So I think I was about 28. So after about five and a half years, entered into that administrative space. And I wanted to be able to make decisions that affected more young people. And I knew that being a teacher, although very noble in my eyes, I knew that it would come with certain limitations. But I also knew that being able to be at the administrative level, you know, possibly I could affect more change. And so I pursued that path, and I had the fortune of being able to be principal of a KA school, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. African American Immersion School. I was very proud to be able to be a part of that tradition, 
Some persons who might be familiar with Milwaukee Public Schools may know that it was formerly known as Victor Berger. And along with uh, what used to be Robert Fulton, was a part of a, a transition, a major transition, to have two immersion schools that focused on the uplift and well-being of African-American children in the city. So Robert Fulton became Malcolm X Academy and Dr. Victor Berger became Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. School. And so I was deeply invested. I really, really believed that we could, and our motto was restore hope in the dream. The school fell on hard times. When I arrived, it was failing. So it was a lot of work to do, even though it had a proud tradition as an emerging school. But during the course of that journey, through much prayer and reflection, I came to realize that I wouldn't have a long stay there. I mean, honestly, anybody who's really engaged in what some may call the trenches, you know, where you really on the ground face to face with some of the harsh realities that afflict our community, it can be very taxing work, specifically when it comes to the psychological and emotional dimensions uh, of leadership and just, I think, humanity. I knew I couldn't sustain what I was putting out for a long time. Uh, and so you speak of, you know, making the transition from principal to, to pastor. It was not it was not difficult. In fact, I was looking for a way out secretly because I began to feel limited. And I felt that I had a repertoire that went beyond what I was able to do within the confines and parameters of the traditional K through eight school day. Talk about what those limitations felt like. Part of it is just time. You know, school school. Days are set. They're very rigid, consistently the same thing. And it, it did not allow me, in my opinion, to utilize everything that I had. I felt that certain aspects of creativity were were being harnessed and it made me uncomfortable. The admin tasks become so dominant. I just really felt that I couldn't be as creative as I wanted to be. And I also felt I had more to say. Okay. You know, sometimes the students would be like, oh, he preaching again. <laughs> But it, it really, inside. Yeah, yeah. it really came from a place of wanting the best, not just for them, but their families and our staff too. And thankfully, by the time I left, we had made significant improvement. We, like I mentioned, we were failing. You know, every year, there's a state report card. We were in the red, which is failing. When I left, I didn't notice initially, but I learned a little bit later in 2019 when I transitioned that we had gone up 14 points from where we were initially, which was kind of meeting some expectations. And we finally got to the green, which was meeting expectations. And so uh, that was very comforting for me to know that there was impact being made. And uh, I hope that the team that's there can continue to make progress and continue with an upward trajectory. I began to consider the secondary, post-secondary space as well, because again, I knew that teacher in me would not fade away. I just wasn't sure that it had to be limited to a, a K through 12 audience. And now this teaching anointing skill set background is now in your leadership at Embassy Center. How much of ministry is how much of what you did as an administrator, as an educator now translates or has transitioned to this role? I believe it was the perfect setup. There's so many just from an administrative lens. There's so many transferable skills, you know, just learning the dimensions of leading from a facility standpoint, from a personnel and staff standpoint, from, if you want to use the term loosely, consumer, who's your audience? So to me, 
that was the one of the best training grounds for what I'm doing now. It really helped me to be grounded also in the the real world of perhaps what some might term and, and Jesus uses these words, the least of these, you know, persons who are in need. Uh, but the beauty of it, and I think what is very seamless is that, you know, I like to use the metaphor of treasure or buried treasure, right? And so oftentimes, especially in the inner city, our young people are forgotten. A lot of families are forgotten. And the assumption can be because of lack that there's moral deficit or, the, or there is intellectual deficit. And I believe that you need some people just like persons who are in pursuit of treasure, right? They, they believe that there's value even sometimes when other people have no idea or have no sense of desire to pursue. And so these persons go and they pursue and when they find it, they, they have to clear out all the excess, all the debris, all the dirt. And then, you know, there's gold there. And so I, I see the same dynamic occurring in a more ecclesial space. And uh, the ministerial sphere, we serve people oftentimes when they're at their lowest, when they feel the most dejected. And not that that's always the case, but oftentimes people turn to spiritual guidance when they feel like they've hit at rock the hardest bottom. times. In those moments, I've recognized that they too don't always know their worth. They don't always know what's beneath maybe some of the layers of struggle and trial. Those things might be real. Maybe there are some challenges that they do need to overcome. Uh, but one of the beautiful aspects, I believe, about God and, and about the Bible is it, it affirms the, the uniqueness of every person, you know, ethnicity and so forth, notwithstanding. Every person is what they say in Latin, the imago Dei, or is made in the image of God. And so dignity starts there, not by what you merit or by what you do. So you don't have to earn anything for me to respect you. At least it should not be that way. Everybody has value in the sight of God. And I, that's, that is the same no matter if the domain is the educational space mm -hmm. or in the more ecclesial space. I love that you have lifted, again, from a, a spiritual but also biblical standpoint, this issue around equity, that we have been all created in his image and that there's inherent equity and fairness. And I love, I think, the conversation about not only how you have physically transitioned into this new role or it is now your job and I put that in air quotes because that of a pastor is you got to be called it is ministry it is a job it's all those things but talk to me about how purpose like your you and I we've known each other for a long time and so I know that the purpose of the educator, the teacher, all of that is upon you. But talk about how that purpose has shown up in how you do what you do, because even how you are leading and pastoring is different than other folk that are in this. <laughs> That's a longer conversation at a different podcast, but understanding of the power of purpose. Wow. Purpose is the point of departure, I believe, and, and really a launching pad. I think early on it was it was really emphasized to me that you have to be a person of purpose. And that was affirmed even when I was in campus ministry, when I was in undergraduate studies and when I came back home and was a part of our ministry, purpose. And recognizing that along with that value that is there, there is a function there is an assignment that you have. And so if I strip away titles, 
in context, I believe that fundamentally I'm supposed to be a farmer. I like that term and I like what I what I know about farmers at this point in my learning. And one of the primary functions that I think about is planting seeds. Mm-hmm. Also vision, because a farmer can look at a field and see harvest when there's nothing cultivated, when no work has been done. They see they they know they have the why for land acquisition and also doing the work in order to yield a harvest. And so to me, that's transferable regardless of the domain. So even so, if I go into a specific industry, I still consider myself a farmer. Uh, if I'm in, in education, I consider myself a farmer. Every day I had a chance to plant seeds. Every chance, every day I had a chance to pl- speak life. Now I really do because it's literally I'm talking for a living. <laughs> Again. <laughs> right. So, so I view it as planting seeds. There's a scripture that says some plant some water and God gives the increase. And so to me, purpose is realized in fullness when you see yourself as not doing something for yourself or unto yourself, but you partner with God. And so unless you view it as a partnership, to me, then it's incomplete. It's an incomplete perspective and you won't achieve the the heights that you could. Mm -hmm. Not that there is some value in willpower and personal agency in that respect. But if if I have an author, if I have a creator, then I have to be in relationship with the author of my story, with the creator, in order to have the best results. And so that knowing has been with me for a long time. And it, and it, it has helped me to have an intrinsic motor. I've pretty much been a self-starter most of my life. I don't have to have people to push me in general. Like I'll you know, if I didn't have homework, I would embark on my own research project because I, I want to learn. I want to grow. I was told when I went to, uh, to Gramlin State University for undergraduate school, I was told by our dean of education, a teacher should know a little bit about everything. And so that's kind of how they they groomed us. Like You don't have to be an expert, but you're shaping young people and they're going to come with questions that may not necessarily be, you know, within your dimension of expertise, but you should be aware, you know, you should try to, you know, get at least a, a cursory understanding of a variety of disciplines because you never know what may be brought to you. And so I, I try to maintain that perspective because I never know who I'm going to come into contact with. That's powerful. I think when you talk about in partnership and even the analogy of being a farmer to plant and you see the land and the harvest but you also are anticipating the potential of that harvest growing, right? But it is in partnership. So much, I think, of the work that we do, you know, whether it is in ministry or in the marketplace or, you know, in our respective industries, is about being present and being a representation. And I was with Marquette students last week, and I said, you know, representation matters. There's a reason that I am here. I need to be here standing as a woman of color, as a woman of faith. And one of the things that hit me strongly is that I usually lean with I'm here as a representation of a black woman. And I know inherently as a spiritual being and as a person of faith, as a person who follows Jesus Christ and all of that. But 
that connection of our representation, both as a farmer, a planter, a receiver, educator, how talk about how important or you know, the necessity to, from a spiritual perspective, but also a natural perspective of being a representation <laughs> and being present, um, being that example for others. Yeah, I think about the perhaps, I believe this may be West African proverb, but I think about the statement, I am because we are, and because we are, therefore I am. So I think the, one of the first dimensions of representation is recognizing that I is really we. Or it should be. And so if I understand that I is really we, that begins to, that begins to shape how I represent what I say, recognizing the implications it may have for those who may not be present with me in a particular space. I think as a, as a black man, in some way, it's a blessing and a burden. Statistically, we know that there's underrepresentation in a lot of different fields, even in education. The last statistic that I was aware of was like black men still constituted less than 3% of educators nationwide. So just being in a classroom or the principalship is almost an outlier when you look at the numbers. So that puts greater responsibility, I believe, on individuals when that dynamic is there. Also think about voice, right? Because you have, so to me, when you say representation, that also, that also links to access. So you may have the opportunity that dozens other, others do not have. So that's where that we comes in. And I think you have to always be mindful of who's coming next, right? We stand on the shoulders of giants. And so because others may have represented well, that creates an, op- that creates a pathway for more to follow, you know, behind. And so, so to me, Voice is something I think about. We, we, we used to teach our students about what is called critical media literacy. So when you view content, don't view it passively, but be an active and be a, an active observer. Begin to ask the questions. Who benefits from the story being told this way? Who's not present? Who stands to lose if this is the only part of the story that's told? Right. So you really, you really begin to have a, perhaps a, a protocol a protocol of inquiry to begin to gain depth. And so voice, it matters in all these spaces, all, all spaces, right? And I embrace that, but it can be a burden too. Now, when it comes to, and I say that because sometimes you don't want that weight. Sometimes you just want to be yourself. Unfortunately, that's not been the, that's, that's not been the sojourn for black folks in these United States. It just hasn't been. We 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 not been able to be individuals. Like leave me alone today. Correct. <laughs> yes. Like, there's always this this group connotation that that's there. So so I think that's something that we just have to prepare for, perhaps more so than some other groups. But at the same time, I realize that when I when and if I do well, it can make it easier for those who are coming next, because there is a next group, whether we want it to be or not. And every, we all really are interim <laughs> in a sense. Right. That is, you know, I think you are hitting on especially the piece and the vo- the piece of voice and representation at it is a seat at the table, it's access, it's in the room, but it's what you do <laughs> in being the representation, how you use your voice. And I think the important piece of this is that 
there are, we don't really turn this off when we have access. We don't turn off what it means to be a representation because hopefully that representation is that of excellence, that that of getting it done, that we are model models for the groups that we are part of. And that is an incredible responsibility, but it is a burden. And I think, you know, just as you've been describing that, that, there can be fatigue um, in being on, being that representation. What do you say about that piece? Well, that's when I would say the partnership with God comes in, but also a partnership with others. So, again, going back to that initial statement, I am because we are. So if I represent, I not only represent myself, but a broader community, a village. Like I know I'm a product of the village. So when a person sees me, it's also we, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud to be able to name persons who have been a part of my story and my narrative. And so when there's when those relationships are healthy, to me, that's where the community or the village can help to replenish. Because in, in some instances, it's like, okay, well, you're there. You can't turn back now. You got to keep forging ahead. <laughs> and to, so to me, it's not just, oh, okay, the village can't say, well, they're there now. It's all good. No, there still needs to be uh, lanes of communication so that that person has wellness in that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, from the spiritual dimension, so that may be more communal, but from the spiritual dimension is recognizing that your spirit first. And so that I think there's a, a proverb that talks about a person can endure a broken body, but a crushed spirit who can bear that. Right. So if your spirit's not strong, that's way more detrimental than perhaps a physical ailment or setback. And so that's where, for me, at least I derive strength through prayer, through, you know, study of the word, through conversations with persons who also lean towards a, you know, a biblical worldview to help remind me of the possibilities that exist because I'm in purpose, because I'm well connected, if I could use that expression. And so while it can be challenging, what I've learned about God is that he's inexhaustible. So if I'm leaning, you know, on him, then even though I might have those periods where weariness may try to set in, you know, I know I'm never alone and I don't have to feel as though I'm going to be defeated. Yeah, that's good. I appreciate this. I I know that there are people who are listening into this that need encouragement. And so much of what we do, whether it's on the equity journey, whether it is in whatever space we in, comes at a cost where there is fatigue and where you can be weary in your well-doing. One of the things that I appreciate, a a number of things that I appreciate about you, but the encouragement um, of the word that you share with the congregation and share just, you know, when I'm having conversations with you is that undergirding of faith. I don't do this work that I do without a fundamental understanding of where I pull this power from. I don't even know how to show up in the world without (laughs) the faith and the undergirding um, of all that is a part of my spiritual being. And so I want, I'm asking the question really around how, how do you see the intersection of ministry and the fight for justice or the fight for equity? Where is, where's the church's role in that, but also just 
the believer's role in, you know, um, in engaging in this, this equity journey? So that's a, that's a great question. I think it's very layered as well, but if I could just approach it, perhaps initially, theologically, there's a scripture, uh, Psalm 89, 14 or Psalm 97, 2. It says that justice and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. So part of what I believe is an perhaps unintended, depending on the person, oversight in the quest for justice and equity is righteousness. There's a there's a there's a balance there. And so that foundation informs for me all the work. And so as a pastor, being able to speak that truth, being able to help share that worldview with congregants who are engaging in various spaces, who may be on the front lines in education or in business or except in other places. Because what I've learned is that faith has a, a purifying effect on, the, on any work that we do. And especially if we're talking about uh, work with uh, per, you know, marginalized communities, persons who are oppressed. One of the things that I've heard many lament as I've come along is that pathology is profitable. I need you to say that one more time. <laughs> <laughs> pathology is profitable, right? And so... You can begin with a noble quest, but what happens when you hit some walls, have some pitfalls, and you know you begin to say, "Well, why, why should I care so much?" When there there's persons who are deriving benefit, who on the surface say they're doing the work, but really there are no results that are substantive to speak of. So then. There has to be something that helps me to stay to stay uh, within the guidelines of integrity. And for me, faith does that. So that's the that's the foundation. Otherwise, the person will be subject to just the vagaries of life. Right. How the winds blow and the caprice of men, because people will shift. And, you know, it happens, I think, way more. And let me not say, let me just kind of back up a bit. Sometimes it's just persons who are jaded, right? They're jaded because of the bureaucracy of things. And they say, well, I just want to do good work. I didn't sign up for all this other stuff that comes with it, right? So you have to have something that helps to purify, but also for me, something that helps to perfect. So how do I get strong? How do I build the stamina to endure? How do I build the requisite you know, wisdom and insights and discernment and discretion to be able to navigate spaces where you engage with a variety of persons and you don't always know what the motivation is. You don't always know the lay of the land. I need I need substance within to help to help me to stay rooted and planted. So other otherwise it could change me. And if I change, then I'm not really doing the work. I'm doing what works. Instead of doing the work. Right. So to me, that's where it starts. And I learned that through the journey. But I think also there's ample evidence in Scripture where some some might say that there's a preferential option for those who have been held down. We see God showing up in amazing fashion to lift up persons who have been oppressed. Right. Those persons who have been 
mishandled, if you will. And so I, I think the, the scriptures provide a baseline. But I also think that because of that foundation, I believe the church should be a lead agency, if you will, when it comes to addressing matters of justice and equity. But to me, we have to see it as part of the character of God. So you can't have it without God. Justice is part of his character. And so if you so as a society, we can't at once say, well, no, we don't want God, but then want the benefits that actually come from him. There's a scripture that says evil people don't understand justice, but though, but the godly understand it well. Proverbs 29, 26 says that many people seek the favor of the ruler, but justice comes from the Lord. So now, again, this is more of a theological approach. And I'm sure you would have persons who would approach it perhaps from their discipline of expertise. But I believe that's the gap. I believe that's why administrations change and we don't see much change. You know, I believe that's why we, we, we have a lot of the, the, the turbulence, you know, from generation to generation to generation. Our nation and even the world has become more secularized. Right. And so the spiritual dimension of leadership, even I think, is a convoluted space. You know, you got you got so much syncretism, right? So many different ideas about what that is that to me what's most important is obscured. And part of that is love. Cornell West said justice is what love looks like in public. Well, God is love. So to me, it still at some point points back to him. Jesus says that all the law and the prophets hang on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so if I'm rooted and if I'm being informed and if I'm being ignited by that line of inspiration, then to me that helps to give me a grounding that lifts me from only seeing it as being about me, but really having an other-centered dimension. So to me, the church has the primary foundation to be able to do it well. But we have to recognize that we're more than a religious institution, but that we are a governing agency, you know, of heaven. And we have a responsibility to show up and legislate, if you will, God's will in our communities. And so that means that we have to speak up when there's a need for advocacy for just causes. That means that we have to be present amongst those who are hurting, those who are wounded. So I also think and I, I've been thinking about this for a while. I think we got to be careful because, I, like I just said, pathology is profitable. And I, and I believe that a lot, a lot of pundits play on the emotions of people. And I believe it's been so politicized that we miss the essence of what I believe true equity is. I believe what we should want primarily is equity of opportunity. But I believe the discourse has been infused with the desire to control the outcome. So people want equity of outcome. And I believe that's wrong. I believe that is a. So when you say equity, I think it's it's presented as if, well, if this group just gets out the way or does these two things and everything will be fine. And I don't believe it. I think that's an oversimplification. I believe I think life is way more complex. And I also believe if we're not careful in our quest to pursue equity, we'll in an unintended fashion strip people of dignity. Here's what I mean. Biblically speaking, there was a system called gleaning. And so those who were more affluent owners, people who had a means of wealth, they were required by biblical law to 
leave portions of their harvest for the poor. They didn't just give it to the poor, but they left it so they could get it themselves. Why? Because one, it demonstrated that because in those type of cultures, they believed that, you know, what was provided came from God. So one, man is not part of that. So it puts that individual in a direct link with heaven. But then secondarily, they're doing, the, they're, they're gleaning themselves. So there's a sense of work. I did this. It may, the context and the conditions may have been provided, but I actually had a stake in getting it for myself as well. So to me, that's a, that's a good balance. You have people who have more being considerate of those who may be not as, may not be as fortunate, but they also are firm. Like I can do something for myself to help myself. And so I'm, I'm a bit concerned that in our quest to help people be lifted, that we also don't remove that sense of personal agency that I believe is so critical because we want people to be able to stand on their own. Like we want we want people to be able to get to a place of being able to have sustainability for themselves no matter where they go. And I'm not I'm, I'm not sure in all spaces that the equity conversation will yield that outcome. I'm not I'm, I'm just concerned about especially with education in our community amongst black children. And I, I want to talk about that, but I want to lift a piece that I think is one of our, our whys for why we've done On the Edge of Equity, this podcast. I want to blow up the bucket of DEI. I've been a practitioner. <laughs> I've held the role of chief diversity officer within an organization. We do this work. And part of that challenge is that I think it is, you know, even... You certainly have more eloquently um, shared than I have described it in my brain, which is ensuring that there is dignity as part of this, but that we have the opportunity through access and other means to create that space where people have personal agency, where there is a lifting of oneself because there is a fair playing ground. And so part of the equity journey for me is recognizing that we will not see equity in our lifetime. Like I've come to embrace that the truest form of fairness is heaven. (laughs) And so being able to understand that it is a journey, but also recognizing the confinements of these kind of conversations that are only relegated to this space or only relegated as long as you give, then I will be. As long as you create this opportunity here, as long as you do this program and this this session, I had had an earlier conversation about what organizations are doing now. Since 2020, there's this renewed focus. The world woke up around um, racism and oppression. Black people have been and other groups have been knowing this for more than lifetime. And so the recognition that the work has to be inherently rooted in our empathy for each other, but also in dignity um, that you don't owe me or I am not your charity case or that anybody who is from an oppressed group is a charity case, but rather we need to have uh, these conversations about the barriers that exist and how do we dismantle those. And so I just want to appreciate that that conversation because that is the root of why we want this discussion because it is not, it's not a program. It's not this initiative that you roll out today and that fixes everything. And it's also not this posture which has been in here and I think 
particularly in the given community, is that people are just beneficiaries that you somehow have to, you know, sort of take care of. So. Right. Absolutely. Otherwise, it frames it. And, and, and when you look at historically how a lot of communities of color were engaged, it was in the context of like wars of the state. So that even though, you know, a person could be an adult, the state is taking care of you know, this, this group or this, this individual. And that, again, that, that to me is based on ideology that is not healthy, I believe, in, in the long run. So it's important, though, to have advocates such as yourself who are interested in perhaps the purest, the purity of it, like the essence of what it actually, actually means. And I think that calls for a broader spiritual and maybe theological discussion. So worldview plays a, a major role in how all of this is approached, right? And so I think that also makes it a challenging space. And, and I think that can be, you know, a barrier in some instances. A lot of the decision makers, as I stated, because here's the thing, if true breakthroughs were able to happen, a lot of people would have no more book content. They would have no more speaking engagements, right? So, so, so there's a whole ecosystem that benefits from pathology. So I don't believe that with all the brilliant minds that have come forth throughout the generations, that we have lacked strategy to be able to address, whether there's economists. I don't believe that. And so part of my default is, well, again, you talk about who benefits if this never changes. And that is sobering to think. We talk about the possibilities of people and humanity. One would love to be able to rest in the idea that everybody has has a noble idea and benevolence and all these things. But to me, it fundamentally goes also back to power. How can power be sustained if there's actual equity? And so that now you start to get into, you know, some some other spaces of discourse and no, that's that's a little muddy water. <laughs> so that is going to be part two okay. <laughs> of this discussion, because I think the profitability and the pathology that's connected to how we have looked through the lens of economy and sociology and psychology, like that has definitely been a way that we've engaged around these conversations and strategies and the solutions are there, but it's a matter of where we want to invest that time and energy. Um, and I just, yeah, that's some, yeah. So that means that there's a continuation <laughs> of this that we need to continue. But I do want to, I want to go back to this piece that I think is connected to our com- all of our conversation, which is something that you lifted a few times, and I know that is a huge part of who you are, and that is the equity in education, but particularly our young people. And so, Dr. Arrington, what's the word for our young people, um, those that are working with young people and people that are engaged in um, these kind of conversations or not? But we know that our communities are faced with significant challenges. I think we both acknowledge that the challenges are there, but there is hope. And there are people on the ground that are doing the work, but our babies need us. Um, And however you define babies, I say my almost 19 year old continues to be my baby, but our young people, I know you have a heart for them. What do you, what's the encouragement around that? Absolutely. You hit the word or shared the word hope. 
which is uh, very, you know, close to my heart. I've been able to, my dissertation work was centered around hope. And so I spent a lot of hours <laughs> reading article after article and book after book. What I love about hope as it relates to young people is that we can grow hope. That's largely what the literature says. What I also love is that hope can be grown. It, it, it's not for the 10 percent. It's not for an exclusive group. And in my research, I found that young people themselves identify who they viewed as people with hope. And so that meant it could be a grandmother. It could be a teacher. It could be a coach. It could be a youth pastor. But certain characteristics stand out when you talk about a person who's able to plant those seeds and help to cultivate a young person. So when we talk about improved outcomes for youth, I think it's twofold. So on one hand, I want to give a shout out to those persons who are practitioners who have, you know, bravely pursued the call, which I believe it is a call to teach, to serve children. I believe it's one of the most noble pursuits one can embark upon. Psalm 127.3 says, children are a reward from the Lord. So these are blessings, gifts that we have the opportunity to help raise up because they all have purpose. They in some form or fashion can be a part of changing the world. So that's a benefit to have that opportunity to do so. So that includes persons who may be in social work or classroom, paraprofessionals, the whole spectrum. So part of it is I want to affirm them to say, listen, you can do it. Your labor is not in vain. It's, it's actually working perhaps more than you believe, but there is a way to do it that is correct and not correct. And uh, I had the opportunity to really glean, I would say, during earlier days of my administrative journey when I worked at Transition High School, you know, under the, uh, the leadership of whom, you know, Derek Rogers. We did a lot of great work, and he helped me to see that aspect of restoration that schools should be engaged in. What we learned was that even though we service primarily young people who had made some mistakes, we began to attract families and students who didn't necessarily fit the description, but needed something different. And so we began to realize that we were a space where young people that otherwise would have fallen through the cracks could be caught. You know, Mumia Abu-Jamal says, listen, if we say this generation is lost, then we adults are responsible for finding them. It's not on them. We have to find them, which means we have to if I could use this term, and we would talk about this at the school, be urban youth anthropologists. Like we have to be keen on what the culture is. What do they like? What do they, what do they not like? We have to be good listeners because young people will tell you if we will listen. I had a chance to work with a whole cadre of adults who care. And one of the frustrations is what happens when you have adults who don't care? How do you make people care? who really don't have to care, which puts more responsibility on the shoulders of those who do, those who answer the call. And so I think it's a complex situation now because ideolo ideologically we have shifting sands. What young people perhaps regarded as boundaries in years past no longer exist. The access to information is way greater. The ability to communicate and how they view the peer network Peers have always been important to youth, but even more so now. Social media is largely influencing perceptions of reality, notions of success, notions of value. 
And so I think it's it's a sometimes it can be a daunting task, but that's why I believe as an adult, if you're going to engage this space, you have to be prepared. You have to know the context and, and know young people. But what I've also found out is young people can be the agents of their own uplift. Their children and, and, and teens, they're way smarter, way more, way sharper than we often give them credit for being. And so that's where I believe if the conditions are properly set, our children will begin to recognize what they can do. And you have to, there's not, you know, we talk about IEPs. We used to use the term PEP. So a personalized education plan. So children learn differently, different learning styles. They respond to different adults. You, know, you may have rapport with one in a stronger way than me. And so I think it's a, it's a hands-on endeavor, all hands-on-deck endeavor. But at the end, in terms of our ministry, you know, part of the vision is to be that place where young people can grow hope, where they can experience it, where they can grow up, where they can be around adults who do care, see their value and say, you know what, regardless of what you're going through, you can overcome it. Your environment, you know, we don't we we won't embrace environmental determinism. Right. It doesn't have to define who you are because you have come from perhaps something dysfunctional or violent or impoverished. No, no, that might be the reality or factual. But the truth is you're more powerful than that. The truth is you can prevail in spite of that. The truth is you're beautiful. You may not see yourself as that, but let me tell you, right? And so there again, that's that farmer. That's that planting seeds that is practicing the possibilities, right? So all of that comes to my mind when you talk about hope and we talk about children. And we've got some phenomenal young people at the ministry specifically who are doing great things involving some of our local organizations such as uh, Urban Underground, different youth councils. So I'm excited, even though my role is not the same, I'm excited to still be in a position where I can make decisions that can help hope to grow amongst our youth. I love that. Final question for you. What's on your reading list? I mean, I know you probably don't get a chance to read as much as, I mean that facetiously. <laughs> so what what are you reading these days? What are you listening to? Tell us about that. Well, so I always carry a book with me. Yes. Because I never know when I will have to wait and how long. So this one is uh, by David Coises, Political Visions and Illusions, A Survey and Christian Critique of Contemporary Ideology. So, you know, this is me attempting to see the left and the right and various perspectives from a biblical worldview to really examine and uh, what one writer would say, uh, shine a light of inquiry, you know, on these different paradigms. But also reading a lot about uh, the kingdom of God. So Bill Winston is a uh, noted pastor and faith leader that I've been uh, reading of late. Now, when you say listening, listening, are you talking about music or are you talking about? I was going to ask you what's on your playlist. So let's go there. <laughs> so I, I like a lot of Christian rap, but also like what they call soaking music, you know, where it's mostly instrumental and uh I have to be able to think, and that helps put me in a, a space where I'm relaxed and I can do the, the work of, you know, contemplation. Uh, Ty Tribbett has a new album out, which uh, I've been listening to lately. Uh, so Is he, that considered soaking music? That's not. I didn't think so. That's like, 
that's, that's hype. That's, that's like turn up music. <laughs> Ty's got a lot of energy. So Ty's one, probably the latest. And then, so it's, it's a little bit of mixture. I'm changing. I noticed over the last several years that my appetite is not what it used to be. So it depends on the mood I'm trying to set. So if I'm trying to, if I'm going to a game with my son and I, I want him to get some energy, we may play some of the, the Christian rap, you know, Lecrae or The Truth or somebody like that. But if it's me by myself, yeah, that's where the soaking music comes in. Okay, I got you. <laughs> I didn't hear Fred, but I know that Fred is a part like of Fred. the extended, you know, playlist. Fred, Fred, Fred is always <laughs> an option. And for, for my listeners that are out there, I'm talking about the one and only Fred Hammond. <laughs> Absolutely. Fred is what, what we would say is a, he's an OG. Indeed. In, in the, uh, the gospel music space. But, but yeah, that's, that's kind of what my, my playlist looks like right now. Okay. Well, let me just appreciate you again and again and again for your life's work, for your friendship and guidance, for just being a standard bearer and a truth teller and for lifting this work from such a multitude of perspectives and sharing today. So I just want to thank you, Dr. Marcus Arrington, Senior Pastor of Embassy Center MKE, for being our guest this afternoon. We're going to ask you to stay tuned for the next podcast on the edge of equity. Enjoy your, the rest of your time. And uh, until next time. Thank you for joining us on The Edge of Equity. Please join our email list at info at athenacommunicationsllc.com so you don't miss a single episode. The link is also in the show notes. You can also support the show by sharing it on social media with your personal and professional networks, suggesting guests and topics for us to spotlight, and engaging in crucial conversations about systems change.